0: Turn with me, do turn with me in your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 15. We're breaking into a story here, the story of David, and the key figure in this chapter is the figure of Absalom, who is David's, one of David's sons. And in the, in the various vignettes of the story up to this point, as Absalom has been introduced to us, we've discovered some things about the character of this man. We found that he is a liar, he lies to his sister, he lies to his father and he lies to some of his father's friends. We find that he is an accuser, that he accuses his father of wrongdoing in certain areas where his father is not a wrongdoer and we find him accusing the regime, the kingdom of failure and we'll pick that up in a moment. He is a murderer, a liar, a, an accuser, a murderer. He's murdered his own brother, and he's got off scot-free. I don't know where that, that expression came into the, uh, the English language, scot-free. In Scotland, no, nothing is free. We make sure that nothing is free. He got off scot-free. And uh, and then, not only this, but he is a deceiver. He has deceived Joab, who, uh, who is... Um, one of the king's advisers into getting him back into the good graces of the king. He's dis- deceived his father, he's deceived Joab, he's deceived everybody into thinking that he's an all right chap and that he should get a good job back in Jerusalem. So he's a liar and he's an accuser and he's a murderer and he's a deceiver and in the next couple of chapters you're going to discover that he is a destroyer. He destroys the kingdom. He's out to destroy the kingdom. Now those are the character qualifications of this man, Absalom. They are recognizable features, and they're intended to be. Because with Absalom in Jerusalem, there is a snake in the garden. There is a serpent in the city of God. And what he's going to do next is going to be a combination of all of those characteristics. ...that we've just described as he seeks to attack God's Christ. Because the reality is that in spite of the bad stuff we've learned about David in previous weeks... ...David remains God's Christ. He is the Anointed One. That is, he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Christ in his office, in his his position... In his persona as the king of Israel, he is the Lord's Christ. David's throne is God's throne. When Jesus comes into the world, the throne that he is given, we're told, is the throne of his father, David. When Jesus ascends back to heaven, he goes to sit on God's throne, which is the throne of his father, David. From David's time for all eternity, the throne of God is associated with the name of this man, David. Now you say, how on earth can David, knowing him now as we know him, how can David be a type or a prototype of the Messiah Jesus? And I want to say that David is a type of Christ. Uh, And and it works both ways, both negatively and positively. He is a type of Christ by comparison. For example, when he faces down Goliath, who is the enemy of Israel, when he righteously refuses to take matters into his own hands and chooses to wait God's time until he is exalted in God's time and in God's terms, he is a forerunner of the Messiah, who first suffers and then Receives his throne, enters into his glory. But he's also a type of Christ, by contrast, not only by comparison, positively, but by contrast, negatively. So when he sins, that's the exact opposite of what Jesus does. And when he doesn't show wisdom in dealing with his own family, that's the exact polar opposite of what Jesus does. But there's a sense in which even in the opposite... He is a prototype of Christ who resists the devil, who acts righteously, and who in all of his ways shows wisdom. So even today as we come to this passage we need to keep that in mind that David is still acting as God's Christ. He is God's Messiah, he is God's anointed, God's son, God's king. And in this chapter, we find the rise of the opposite of David. Here is someone who is raising his head against God's Christ, God's anointed, God's Messiah. Here is the rise of the very first Antichrist. We're going to look at this together like this. We're going to look first of all at the rebel leader and then at the rejected leader. Let's look at those two points together. And by the way, just because I've only got two points does not mean you get home earlier than usual. Sorry to disappoint you. First of all, there's the rebel leader. We're introduced at the beginning of the chapter to this man, Absalom. We've already learned some stuff about Absalom, very significant thing in chapter 14, verse 25, 26, and 27. We read there about Absalom that he was a very good-looking and beautiful man and that he had a very fine head of hair that he cut regularly. And when he cut it once a year, it weighed a lot. Uh, And I don't know if some of you girls with long, long, long hair uh, ever do this or will ever get it cut, but when you get it cut, I hope you're not going to be like Absalom and weigh it so that you can boast about it. But Absalom, Absalom kind of liked himself. He kind of liked himself, and everybody knew just how much Absalom's hair was worth. He was really in love with himself. He is a beautiful man. He has a beautiful family. That's what we find out in chapter 14. Here in chapter 15, we find him taking this this, to the next level. He hires a bunch of guys, and uh, he hires uh, an an open-top chariot, and he has these guys running along beside his chariot and he drives through the streets of Jerusalem. He gets up in the morning does his hair, gets into the chariot the chariot drives off these guys are running beside the chariot. You know what it looks like? It looks like a presidential limousine these look like the secret service guys. They're fine looking hunks of guys themselves, they're running alongside the presidential limousine through the streets of Jerusalem, everybody is stopping to look at the hair as it goes fly past. You can imagine the scene, here's the hair streaming in the background, here's a chariot hurtling through the streets of Jerusalem, everybody's, I just like doing that actually, everybody's out, because I wish I had hair to do it with, uh, everybody's out watching this chariot go through the streets of Jerusalem. Here's the picture. What is he doing? Here is Absalom carefully constructing his image. He has the retinue. He has the regalia of a prince. What he wants to look like as he goes through the streets in the chariot is—he wants to look like a regal, kingly figure. He wants people to look at him and to say, "That's the kind of young guy." Look at that. Look at him. Look, just look at him. He just looks like a king. Actually, he looks like a celebrity, not a king. That's a great danger, isn't it? Of of, uh, having a celebrity instead of a king. He looks like a celebrity as he goes through the streets of Jerusalem. That's the kind of person we need running Israel. Absalom is constructing his image. Strutting his stuff for all Israel to see. Secondly, we find Absalom subverting the kingdom. Not only does he go through the streets getting attention for himself, but he gets up early in the morning before everybody else is up. He goes to the gate of Jerusalem, where people from all over the kingdom who have gone through the system in their tribal area, they've gone through the, system, the, the judicial system there and have not been happy with the results. They've come to Jerusalem now to the high court to be seen and heard by the high judge, by the supreme judge in Israel who is the king. And there Absalom waits in the morning as the plaintiffs and defendants come and he sits down, he sits down by the side of the road and they come to him and they tell him what what their problem is, what their case is, whether they're a plaintiff or a defendant. He listens to them, he gets eye contact with them, he grunts at the right moments, he nods his head with sympathy, he hears what they have to say and there's not one person, there's not one person who comes to the gate of Jerusalem that Absalom doesn't, look them in the eye and say, you know, you have a case. You have a case here. In fact, this is what it says. Absalom would say to them, your claims are good and right. You have a good case. Isn't it a great shame that there is nobody designated by the king to hear your case? What's he doing? Well, he's lying. He's accusing He's deceiving, he's suggesting dissatisfaction with the system. He's re- he's, you can almost hear him giving a great big sigh as he tells you, you've got a great case, isn't it a shame nobody is going to take one blind bit of notice about you and your case. Now we know differently, we know differently because as we've been following the story in just the immediately, Uh, the chapter immediately before this chapter we saw a woman from the remotest part of Israel from the remotest regions of Israel coming to Jerusalem and she is heard in a private hearing by the king himself and what that's in the Bible among other things is to tell you David was still doing his job he was still doing what the kings of Israel were meant to do they were meant to be the judges of Israel Here is David doing his job, but what Absalom is suggesting is dissatisfaction with David. He is insinuating it. Do you notice this? He is insinuating doubt. He is trying to arouse dissatisfaction with the regime. He is trying to subvert the kingdom of God as it's expressed in Israel by Israel's king. And his complaint is misleading and even deceitful in its intent. And in fact, it's reminiscent of another conversation that we read about in the Bible right at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3 when the devil comes, you remember, and he insinuates doubt into the mind of Eve. And then he deceives her. And that's what Absalom is doing here. He's echoing these the actions of the serpent in Eden. So in verse 4, Absalom would say, Oh, that I were the judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me. And the to me is, is emphasized in the Hebrew. Come to me and I would give them justice, he says. In other words, what he's saying to these people in effect is this. David doesn't care, but I would care. If only I had the power, I would care. I'd fix this for you. You vote for me, and I'll do the job that you need done. And he adopts this common man approach. Do you notice in verse 5, he adopts this common man approach. He he takes off his tie and his jacket, and he he puts on a hard hat, and he gets a a Big Mac, and he sits down by the side of the road, and he says, you see how ordinary I am. You know, you, you think I'm Prince Absalom, but I eat Big Macs just like you do. If you don't care for your heart, uh, I eat Big Macs just like you do. And in case bricks falls from the building here behind me, I've got my heart on so that I look like a working man. He gets down to their level. Look at verse five. Whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. He had learned this great technique that the politicians, I remember shaking hands with a president once, and this president did this. He took my hand and he pulled me in and he put his arm on my shoulder and he smiled as he looked into my eyes. I tell you at that moment I thought I was the most important person in the world. <laughs> then the next person along was Prince Charles. He didn't do any of those things. <laughs> but it's a political technique isn't it? I mean. I'm going to be standing at the door and everybody going out this morning is going to see whether I use this technique before they go out. <laughs> Can I just say this as a little caveat here? Eric Alexander, who some of you know, his technique when shaking hands at the front door was something like this. He got your hand and he catapulted you out onto the side. <laughs> I say, I have never in my life experienced... I mean, you did not touch the ground from the moment he took your hand. You were out in the middle of the floor. How on earth did I get here? Anyway, that's, that's just that's another story. Here he is. What he's doing is working the crowd. And what he's doing is subverting the kingdom. Look at verse 6. Absalom did to all Israel, who came to the king for judgments. Absalom, Absalom stole the hearts. Literally, he deceived the minds. He duped the minds of the people. He is a deceiver. So he's cultivating his image. He's subverting the kingdom, and then in verse 7, he's instigating a conflict, actually, a civil war. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I vow to the Lord, in Hebron. This is his coup de grace. This is, this is a bit of religion, you see, thrown in. A little bit of religion is good, especially if you're in Israel, because Israel is a kind of religious place at this time. And so under a show of spirituality, even though he's plotting rebellion... He's now acting like King Saul or like ancient Israel who used religion for their own ends. And he goes to Hebron and he does so with his own purposes. What does he do when he gets there? He takes takes with him 200 people. They they have no idea what's going on. They've just been invited out for a party at Hebron with with the prince. And so they go with Absalom there. And when they get there, they discover there's another agenda going on. Absalom has already sent spies, that's what the word is, it's the same word as when Joshua sends spies to look at the promised land, to look at Canaan and to give, bring back reports. He, here is Absalom, he sends spies into all the towns and villages of Israel. And he asks them to go into deep cover until the trumpet is blown. And when the trumpet is blown, they have to come out of cover And they have to go around everybody in the marketplace that comes out into the streets to find out what's going on. And they're to circulate the story that Absalom has been crowned king in Hebron. What he's doing is he's he's, instigating a conflict that is going to lead to bloody civil war in Israel. In fact, the use of that word spy suggests he's out to get the land. He's out to conquer the land every bit as much as Joshua had conquered the land many hundreds of years before. Now, in many ways, what's going on in the story, of course, is part of God's judgment. God's judgment on David, God's judgment on Israel. It's part of that judgment. God had promised, or he had had said that in his word. He had said to David that this antichrist figure would arise from David's own household, God's word had predicted it. But although God had predicted it, and though God was using it as a way of judging both David and Israel, God did not make Absalom wicked. God did not make Absalom do it throughout it. Absalom's wickedness is Absalom's choice. Absalom's evil is Absalom's decision. It's the kind of thing that we see put in a principle when the Apostle Peter is preaching about the cross of Jesus on the day of Pentecost. And he says to the crowd, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But you crucified and killed him. You crucified and killed him. That was your choice. God didn't make you do it. But God had said you would do it. And God is going to overrule what you did. But you stand condemned for your own decisions here. You are responsible for your own action. Well, that's the rebel leader. He's now with, he now has the upper hand. And so the focus moves to the rejected leader, David. A messenger comes to him, verse 13 saying the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. David immediately goes into shepherd mode. He's the shepherd of Israel, that's one of the roles of the king, he must care for the people. He immediately goes into shepherd mode and says that if we stay here, if I stay here, if my troops stay here, there's going to be a bloodbath in Jerusalem and innocent people are going to be killed. We must leave the city. Here is the king prepared to be rejected prepared even to die outside the city walls in order to preserve the sheep, in order to save the sheep. The shepherd of Israel, the king, who is called the shepherd of Israel, is willing to lay down his life, risk his life for the sake of the sheep there in Jerusalem. And as he leaves the city, you can imagine the grief that is overwhelming him as he thinks of the rejection now of all Israel welcoming Absalom therefore rejecting him as their king but i think more than the grief he feels for himself he feels grief about what they're doing to god this is god's kingdom he's god's king when they rebel against the king they're rebelling against the king god the king because at this point you see david represents Israel. He, he is Israel personified. He personifies what Israel is. So as he goes into exile Israel, believing Israel, goes into exile. And just as later on in their history they would move into exile going east of Jerusalem, so David goes east of Jerusalem towards the wilderness. It's almost like a reversal of the story of Israel. They came from the wilderness into the promised land. Here is Israel personified by David going back to the wilderness going back to that place from which he had come well we follow David as he leaves the city somewhere outside the gate he meets a man called Ittai, a Gittite that is, he's a Philistine he comes from the city of Gath David says to this man who's just come into his service and he's got some people with him David says to this man, what are you doing here? This isn't your fight. You're just new on the on the scene. You could stay in Jerusalem and you'd be fine. You can stay there and serve the king, meaning Absalom. And this man, itai, is what the first one. Do you notice? He's the first one to make a statement on behalf of David. He says in verse 21, "As the Lord lives." And as my Lord the King lives, you notice that, he will not let David say that Absalom is the king. As far as it is concerned, there's only one king, as the Lord lives. And as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or for life, there will your servant be. Here is a man who is a Gentile. He's not a Jew, he's not an Israelite. He is a Gentile. He comes from the dreaded Philistines. He comes from the city of Gath. He's a Gittite, which isn't a very nice thing to be. Doesn't sound nice anyway. But here is this man, and he is loyal to the king. He has given given Yahweh, I am the Lord. He has given the Lord his confidence and his trust and his faith. And therefore he cannot be faithful to the Lord and reject the Lord's Christ, the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Messiah. It's interesting that about a thousand years later, it's Gentiles who hear the King, King Jesus. And in hearing King Jesus believe, and in believing, they're saved. It's because here are people who have no right to the promises, like this man has no right to the promises or the covenants, and isn't a natural Israelite, but he believes the Israelite gospel, he believes salvation is of the Jews just as Jesus said, and he trusts in the King. Well, that must have cheered David up no end as he walks away from the city and Itai follows him with this man. I want you to walk, walk, wander with David down the road. Here he comes, leaves the city, he goes down into the Kedron Valley, he crosses the Kedron stream, he climbs the Mount of Olives, and as he's climbing the Mount of Olives, he gets word that Ahithophel, a trusted advisor, close friend, a longtime ally, has betrayed him, has gone to the dark side, has joined Absalom in the rebel alliance. And he's absolutely shocked by this. He's overwhelmed by this. He receives this bad news of this friend's defection, verse 31. And immediately, David turns to prayer. Do you notice that? He prays on the Mount of Olives. Oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. This guy, Ahithophel, you did not want to be without this kind of guy. He's a wise counselor and advisor. This was seriously bad news. And so he prays to God, God, please do something about Ahithophel. I don't know what David had in mind, by the way. I don't know whether he thought God might give him a stroke, you know, or zap him with a heart attack, or that Ahithophel might get involved in a five-chariot pileup on the Jerusalem Expressway, otherwise known as the Surekill Expressway. <laughs> we might have come up with all kinds of scenarios, but but God is always surprising in the way He writes His own script. No sooner does David offer up this prayer then a guy comes along the road with torn clothes and dirty hair along the road came this man called Hushai. the archite came to meet him with coat torn and dirt on his head interesting insight anyway it was amazing this guy should turn up at this moment that because he had just prayed and here was this man who was in a position to go back to Jerusalem and be a spy for David and that's what he did God had provided this man as an encouragement to David to let David know, listen, things are not out of my grasp. And in the end, Ahithophel's counsel would not prevail because actually Absalom would not listen to it. He was a fool not to listen to it, but he didn't listen to it. run right about this time David wrote a poem, we call it Psalm 3. He wrote a poem, O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul. There is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. You see, in this chapter, when things start going bad, what is in David comes out. What lies beneath the surface of David's heart now comes to the surface. We've known him as a man of faith, but that faith has been severely bruised and battered, in our opinion, as we've seen him disobey God in a series of ways. But here, under the pressure, in the furnace of suffering, we find David emerging as the man we knew him to be in his heart. Look at this little incident that takes place on the way with Zadok the priest. The king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. Zadok comes with the ark with the other priests, and he says to David, we're with you. And David can remember that King Saul took the ark of God into battle. And he can remember that Israel used to take the ark of God into battle. And it had come, become proverbial in Israel that, that the ark of God was a kind of magic talisman that you took with you. kind of lucky charm. Now lucky charms are good for breakfast, but lucky charms are not good for you spiritually. They don't do you any good. David realized that. He'd had his lucky chance for breakfast. He wasn't taking the Ark of God and using it as if it was one. And he says, No, I'm not taking the Ark of God. I won't use God that way. I will trust everything. Do you notice what he says here? If I find grace in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it, the Ark, And his dwelling place. But if he says I have no pleasure in you. Behold here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. What David. You see here's the real David emerging here. He's determined that he will not use God. He will submit to God. He won't use God. So the ark remains. And the anointed king. Goes in to exile. And there's a sense in which David and the ark are connected like this. David himself is the bearer of the Lord's presence and the throne of God and the true Israel who goes into exile and suffers in exile. But he is also a believer who as he moves into his future, moves back into his past to recover the roots that he had in God in better days. You see, one of the features of backsliders is this. The difference between a backslider and someone who is a reprobate, that is someone who is rejected, the faith is simply this, backsliders come back. They come back. It may be years before they come back. You're praying for someone who once walked with the Lord and now they've gone way away from God. Don't give up praying for them. Like David, they may come back one day. Pray for them that they'll come back. Well, as we come to look at the overview of this story. I want you to see that what we have here is a little microcosmic insight into the spiritual war that's going on all around us. In the book of Daniel for example Daniel sees a vision of the future and in the future he sees a person described as a beast who speaks words against the Most High and wears out the saints of the Most High and tries to change everything and that person is the Antichrist. And in the New Testament, we're told there are many, many Antichrists who have gone out into the world. Many of them. The organized spirit of Antichrist dominates the world system, whether it's in the West or in the rest of the world. The organized spirit of Antichrist, masterminded by the serpent, the ancient serpent called the devil and Satan. In Revelation chapter 12, we have a description of what the devil does. He's like a great serpent who waits for the woman, Israel, to produce her child. A male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And he does his utmost to destroy the child. He does his utmost to to stamp out the child and fails to do that. And so what does he do? He turns and he makes war on the rest of her offspring, all the rest of the Israel of God, that is the church, here's how they're described. The dragon becomes furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. It is the business of the Antichrist To make war on the true Israel, the believing Israel of God that is composed of people who keep the commandments of God and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. This is what we are locked into today. This conflict of the ages. This conflict is ultimately, ultimately going to be successful in favor of the Lord's anointed. In this story, I want you to notice something about David. He's under the judgment of God for his own sin. He's rejected by his own people. He has to leave the city where once he was lauded and applauded as the king of Israel. He goes down the hill, out of the city, over the brook Kedron, up the Mount of Olives, where he hears of the denial and defection of one of his own, to the opposite side, to serve the devil, the serpent. And I want you to see that in this chapter what you have in the story of David is a mirror image of the story of Jesus who is under the judgment of God not for his own sin but for your sin who is going to suffer rejection not because of his disobedience but because of your disobedience and he leaves the very city in which he was applauded and received as the king of Israel the son of David blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord Hosanna to the son of David they cried and he has to leave that city on the night he was betrayed after he'd broken bread with his disciples he goes out the gate down the hill he crosses the Kidron he climbs the Mount of Olives And the betrayer, one of his own dear friends, comes with his army to arrest him as Jesus prays, as David prayed on the Mount of Olives. What we see reflected in this story is a great type of what was to come. Ultimately, the organized kingdom of Antichrist is going to be destroyed by the very strategy and agenda that it has adopted to destroy God's Christ. Because Christ rose again, you see, and because David ultimately will secure Jerusalem, and because Jesus one day will bring new Jerusalem down out of God from heaven, we look at the conflict we are engaged in now against the antichrist in our day, the anti-christian world system that we live in and we hear the words of the apostle Paul as he says to us, God is going to crush Satan under your feet shortly. God is going to crush Satan under your feet shortly. We look at the rest of David's story. We look at what it tells us about the future of our story. And we get our confidence from this secret truth. Don't tell the devil this. Keep it to yourself. What I'm going to tell you right now. you listening? We win. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great good news of the gospel we thank you that the Lord Jesus unlike David was innocent but like David came under judgment not for his sin as David did but for our sin thank you that like David he was rejected by his people left the city, crossed the brook, went up the hill the Mount of Olives and there In rejection and suffering, ultimately, was arrested, crucified, dead, buried for us and for our salvation. Thank you that you raised him from the dead and that his resurrection life is the guarantee that we have that we shall be raised from the dead too. We pray that you would help us to live in light of the victory that he accomplished, we pray, in his strong name. Amen.